Hello and welcome to Wild Health Podcasts. My name is Jeremy Nibbs. I'm the publisher of Wild Health and the Medical Republic. And today we're talking to Andrew Aho, Regional Director of Data Platforms in Australia, New Zealand and Southeast Asia for InterSystems, about the changes in approach to interoperability problem solving that COVID seems to have brought about and what insights and lessons there might be for organisations looking to adopt data-driven healthcare models. A great silver lining of COVID has been how it has forced governments, technology vendors and healthcare providers to think collectively and practically around the development and application of technologies, especially the sharing of healthcare data, in order to problem solve in the crisis in real time. That thinking has significantly changed how most healthcare provider organisations have approached data-driven healthcare and what many people see as the complex problem of interoperability which enables it. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Andrew, the founder of FIRE, the game-changing web-sharing standard for healthcare, Graham Greve, says of interoperability that for all the technology being developed to facilitate it, it's not a technology problem. I'll quote him. It's a problem of getting people to talk to each other and trust each other and commit to working together. The biggest part of the solution is to create the conditions under which that'll happen. InterSystems is one of the major global vendors in interoperability with a suite of products on offer. How do you reconcile what Grieve says about interoperability with what you offer to healthcare providers? Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. So, look, I agree with uh, Graham, um, and certainly his m- very many years of experience dealing with this problem firsthand in a number of geographies and across various different jurisdictions. Um, he, he certainly would know. In my own experience, uh, I can say that at times it has felt like the industry, including vendors, healthcare providers, government and so on. You know, it sort of feels like the participants are looking around at others to see who's going to take those first steps and, and who is taking the first steps. And, you know, as, as Graham says, it's true that the, the technology that um, can enable interoperability, um, whether that's what is provided by um, vendors like InterSystems or, or others, you know, it's available. And we also know that in these kind of programs where it's a clinical technology project, you also need to have clinical engagement for success. And so I think uh, what I see is not so much a lack of trust always, um, but certainly being able to communicate the needs of clinicians and have technology people demonstrate evidence or be able to articulate relevant examples. So to me, there's really a few ways, um, and I think about it as all communication actually, but a few ways that we can create those conditions. So um, firstly, is this communication between the technical and clinical teams, and that's translation. You get that right, um, and that can lead to you know an exceptional level of trust. Um, and I think one of the keys there is having people who are um, across both domains and can do that translation for you. InterSystems invests in, in a, a substantial number of people who come from clinical backgrounds, doctors and nurses and so on, uh, who work in our technology business um, to do exactly that. The second type of communication, I think, which is important to create these conditions is communication around benefits. So what are the things that we think we're going to get from this piece of work? What are the anticipated benefits? Uh, what's the cost of doing nothing? You know, what happens if we, so long as we don't do this? And then we can use that to help align our own teams and then to ensure that sufficient resources are in place uh, with the appropriate funding. Uh, and I think the the other piece is also communication of outcomes and results. So that bit that I said before, where it might feel like we're looking to see who's taking the first steps, 
So obviously sharing those successes and inspiring others to take action. So I thought, you know, in that vein, maybe I might also kick off with an example of an inter-systems customer who's doing some great things in this area called RxMX. Um, Now, they've been a a Deloitte Fast 50 contender for a number of years, a great Australian health tech uh, story, and they work in the complex and comprehensive medications space. And so, you know, these are very expensive um, therapies that if we can help bring the costs down, they will be able to treat very many more people. Um, And key to being able to do that is being able to prescribe it in the right way and have patients adhere to the schedule. And so they have done, um, you know, some very impressive work to bring the parties together and to create these conditions um, where we can have real interoperability between pharma lab, GP, specialist, and the patient. Um, and they're able to build you know, great apps, communicate via SMS, and use data to really bring all those participants together. Prior to COVID, it felt like interoperability was more a buzzword for government and providers than a mission-critical part of an organisation's DNA. Now we're just sort of coming out of the major crisis of COVID. So much has changed. What do you think has fundamentally changed in in how clinicians and um, CIOs, CTOs look at the problem? And can you describe some examples? You just described one example of an organisation, but can you describe an example of an organisation within the context of of what's happened in COVID and how they're now engaging more effectively in in a data-driven journey? Yeah, like there is no doubt that the last couple of years have been very interesting and very demanding um, for for everybody really, but certainly within healthcare uh, around the world. And, and no doubt the pressure that's been put on uh, the system and on, on nurses and doctors for extended periods of time, I think exactly as you're saying, um, there has been a big impact on how CIOs and CTOs, you know, leadership and, and people who are in the ecosystem of healthcare and healthcare uh, technology uh, have to think differently. And and I think encouragingly, um, we are seeing some really good examples uh, of, I guess, the long-term effects of what COVID did to our thinking going back a couple of years. So I remember initially, you know, March 2020, we had a list of, of, of programs and projects that were on the go, and we saw rapid um, rationalization of that. So if it's essential, we did it done yesterday. If it was high priority, uh, we're going to keep it on the list, but don't talk to me about it until I'm ready. And then anything below that um, was perceived to be nice to have, and it's basically taken off the list. So I think that you know rapid prioritization process uh, and rationalization is something that has carried through. I think we do have, we recognize that um, you know, we need to be a bit more diligent in how we're uh, managing programs of work. We, we you know, there's a great example, um, and it wasn't one of our customers, but in New Zealand, um, there's a, there was a telehealth program that was uh, trying to be run for a number of years. And right at the beginning of COVID, uh, it was given the impetus to obviously to go live. And they were able to bring it live well ahead of schedule um, in about three weeks' time. And so I think, Again, this this is an education for us in the industry and for for leaders that you know things have changed and you can be very effective with existing resources and it doesn't always require a mountain of money to to get moving and to drive change. So 
In terms of an example, um, again, another one from New Zealand, uh, Mercy Ascot in Auckland. They had uh, they were in the middle of a project to deploy the InterSystems patient administration technology, and uh, just at that first wave, uh, we were getting towards their go live, and obviously all of us were in lockdown, and some people were in New Zealand, some people were in Australia, and if you're aware, for for any um, kind of the, these major. Um, go lives of healthcare systems and hospital systems. This is an all hands on deck for the project teams of all of the involved people. Everyone gets there, you know, there's several days around the clock work to make sure it, everything goes as it, as it should do and that any uh, problems that are surfaced are dealt with and that, that everyone needs to understand how the thing is going to work. And then there's a period of hyper care where, you know, we're making sure things are still continuing to, um, to work and smoothing out uh, any challenges that arise. Now, you're going from a situation where we've done this in person for, for very many years and we have our routines and, and ways of making that work really, really well. And all of a sudden we can't get there and, and they can't allow us on site and we can't even get to the places we need to be. So I think, you know, a big learning for us uh, and a huge credit to both, you know, Mercy Ascot and InterSystems. This was our very first uh, remote go live of its kind. And it was run very well. And I think, you know, a huge learning for, for both parties is what you can do when the project team is aligned, when, you know, the uh, when, when people are thinking about how to do this in different ways. Um, and yet, yeah, by all accounts, um, now they've, they're, they're moving into later stages of this project and they've got the foundation for far more data-driven ways to, to manage their uh, patients and their business as a result of that. Right. Um, Andrew, I'm going to go off piece for a minute and ask you a separate question here. Typically, you see in the bigger systems and, and certainly in, in what you guys do and in what some of the other big EHR systems do in the hospital sector, an ability probably driven by America and parts of Europe for those systems to, to be interoperable if they need to be in the sense that they, they will often inbuild fire and inbuild open APIs. But once you get outside of those bigger systems, what you're looking at is a hospital sector trying to talk to a primary care sector in Australia. Um, do, do you think there's, what are the opportunities for hospitals that have this interoperable technology but aren't able really to talk directly to the primary care sector because primary care sector is stuck in, in older legacy bound um, technology, which isn't really interoperable? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, look, there's probably a few things in that. And, you know, I'm an avid skier. I haven't been able to do a lot of it in North America where I normally like to go in recent years. So I like your uh, off-piste uh, analogy. But um, I, look, I think the... Um, firstly, I don't think all hospital systems have that level of interoperability and fire um, that maybe it's perceived that they do without going into the specifics. If you, if you look at uh, how long the cycles take for technology to uh, roll around in these hospital systems, uh, I was really referring to the fact that you could have, um, and we know this from the work that we do in um, state-based interoperability, that they're connecting into lots of different um, electronic medical records across primary as well as acute and inter-communities. And irrespective of the vendor, you get all the different standards that they might be adhering to. And, and like you've pointed out, maybe in, in primary care, there are places where there are 
no standards and very difficult to connect to. So I think the the problem exists even where there is a big investment in interoperability. And so there's probably a couple things to say about that um, to give a bit of hope to those in who might be on the other side and, and, and suffering from why can't I connect and why don't th- these things work together. You know, intersystems heritage uh, has come from what's actually underneath the um, patient administration system and the electronic medical record. It has always been the foundation for making data, um, and we work in many industries, but healthcare is a big part of what we do, but making data available, reliable, clean and accessible. And around that, we have lots of capability for transformations between standards and for being able to connect to systems that don't have any standards. And again, you know, I can cite at least a couple of state-based organisations in Australia, South Australia Health is one, where you're connecting to all these different systems and you can get them to talk together uh, and to each other, um, you know, in a, in a very uh, meaningful way. Now, I, I heard someone say to me recently, you could point intersystems to a brick wall and you'd get data out of it. I mean, it's very, very clever in how we can do that. And then once you've got that foundation, you know, all of the customers who use our health share and track care products, you know, that, that's all built on this one um, data platform. So they get the benefit of that and they could take some leadership, I think, in, and they probably do, um, to your point, is you know, how can we demonstrate to others the, the power of this interoperable system that we have? Yeah, so, so you've got a big spectrum at the moment of larger organisations that are, that are probably more able to go on the journey. And it sounds like your organisation is super busy now, which means... There's a lot of interest, especially at the high end in interoperability. But even as a sort of a large organisation, they're complex beasts. They've got finance cycles. They've got cycles of talent. Um, You know, is the CTO a CTO that really understands this and knows how to do it and can push it with the bosses? You've got external pressures like COVID. You've even got political pressures state to state. Do you think through COVID you're seeing as an organisation... Um, some common wisdoms that some healthcare providers uh, you see in some healthcare providers that are, that are taking this journey in, in the context of them sort of stepping back and going, well, we might not be in the finance cycle, in the right finance cycle at the moment, but we know we have to have a roadmap here and a, and a journey and we're going to engage at this level. Yeah, certainly. And, and you're right, we're seeing, we've got a lot of growth in this area, a lot of interest. Um, I think there are some common wisdoms, like you're sort of pointing out, it's got to be put into context, you know, is it the, is it the leadership? Is it the funding? Uh, are they small, large, private, public? Um, all these things can have an impact as to whether the, the, the wisdoms apply or whether they don't. But I think generally speaking, I think what we tend to see and to, to advocate around these sorts of pieces of work and programs is that it's not easy. Right, you need to have the right level of investment. Um, it requires time and patience from the organisation. You know, as as Graham says, you've got to have that collaboration and trust. I think we also, because a lot of the work that we do is creating that foundation for data, which then leads to the other things that you might like to do, whether that's building new apps or going into an AI ML uh, program, or even just getting better analytics and understanding as to what's happening in your in your organisation. So getting a digital and data literacy assessment completed 
and a um, whether it's training and education uh, or a regular benchmark on improvements in that area, I think is a very good, another foundational piece, irrespective really of where you are across that spectrum. And the other thing that I, I tend to uh, have the benefit of seeing as I'm working across a number of different sectors is I think monitoring the external environment, looking at how where innovation is taking place. And predominantly I'm thinking here of startups, whether they're in health or not, and seeing how you know those uh, new entrants are organizing themselves and how they're structuring their organizations and how they are forming and to solve what problems. And then, you know, you can use those ideas in your own organization to help uh, drive new innovation, um, you know, change your organization in ways you maybe hadn't thought you could, and and potentially even open up to new partnerships with those startups or even investment opportunities um, as well. Yeah. Um, just to let listeners know, we often script these um, these podcasts so that we don't catch our speakers out and um, I'm trying to catch Andrew out a lot here with questions which we we haven't scripted. Here's another script, unscripted question which is a little bit off least as well. Do you think, it, you know, you're, you obviously would be very aware of what's happened in, in the United States which is a ter- you know, terrible healthcare system but, but now that the, um, the Cures Act is in play and everyone over a five-year period has been forced to a common standard of talking to each other, what you're saying there is is you know a, a vastly accelerated innovation um, ecosystem uh, because everyone's on the same playing field. Do you think in Australia it might help to sharpen people's mind to provide it if the government did provide some sort of framework to say within a certain period of time everyone has to be able to talk to each other in a modern way like this? Is that um, is that too politic a question for you, Angel? <laughs> look, it's an interesting one, um, and I think um, you, you've got to look at uh, the U.S. system. Um, however, you characterise it, what they did was to say, as vendors, you either need to get together and figure out how to do this, or we'll do it for you. And the prospect of having government jump in and taking that ownership and responsibility initially was sufficient to drive the action. So it's a horrific thought. Yes, it's for many I think I think so, but I don't know quite how that translates to Australia. I think we have comparably, I think we have a wonderful system. I think the the foundation, and I keep saying foundation, but I really do mean it, it's there. Um, we've got a lot of what what is needed. We've got organizations that are working on national standards and terminology exchange and, and uh, you know, th- there's infrastructure and capability. Um, sure, you know, you can always improve uptake through different levers and sometimes that is government intervention with incentives and sometimes that's measurement and sometimes it's the availability of technology or whatever it might be. I don't, I don't think I have the, the particular right mix of, um, of answers for how you do that in Australia uh, at large. But I think, like I said, you know, we do work in a number of the states and, 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 and Northern Territory as well. And we're seeing you know, really a lot of innovation around making sure that their systems are interoperable, making sure that they're getting clean data, um, getting it all um, ready for all these other possibilities that we talk about, like AI and 
um, building new apps and, um, and and opening up to to further innovation. So, yeah, long story short, I think the I think the innovation is going well. I think the foundation is there, and there's there's a ton of opportunity um, uh, in this country. Uh, well answered. I'll try not to um, tri- trip you up anymore. <laughs> it, it, it's it certainly seems that. A lot of people say in terms of interoperability and where their organisation is, it's a matter of timing. And I saw, we sort of touched on this briefly before. Do, do you think, and some people have said to me, it's a matter of waiting for the right financial cycle before you can really even move. Do you think that's the case or that certain organisations should be now, given, given the technology that's evolving so rapidly, be a little bit more proactive in trying to get themselves um, to the front end of this technology faster than they might normally do under, like, say, a state funding mm. cycle? Yeah, look, um, I, I probably come at this from a, um, a very much a commercial and private um, sector perspective, but I do appreciate that in public sector, you know, funding cycles are a very real thing. Um, I have seen people do incredible things outside of funding cycles. Um, but personally, for me, waiting is not a really good place for me to be and being proactive is something that I would always advocate for. And so even if you are in a, you know, holding pattern, I think there's still things you can do depending on your context. If let's say you're looking at one of these initiatives um, and you really don't have the skills and the resources available, then you will be hard pressed to do very much before you get into your funding cycle but in order to be prepared for that funding cycle, you should have uh, and start to develop a really good understanding of what your anticipated business benefits are. And I think I alluded to this before, the cost of doing nothing, whether that's expressed in benefits to patients that are not being captured or potential harm and safety issues, uh, you know, getting in front of that um, by talking to your peers and engaging with organizations. I've mentioned a couple who have done it before talking to intersystems, um, you know, I think if you're in that position where you do have to wait for funding, there's still things you can be proactive about. And if you're in maybe a bit more of a privileged position and you've got some skills and resources um, that could potentially be diverted in advance of major funding or additional funding, then, you know, we'd, we, would, we would say, let's have a look at a pilot program or a proof of concept and let's try and get something um, small that can be um, referred to in the business case. And that just helps things in the business case become that bit more tangible and helpful when you are applying for the funding when it comes around. So that's a tactic that you've used with clients. You've, you've said, hey, we can isolate this part of what you're doing and have a proof of concept that you can show the yep, bosses. Absolutely. A, and, yeah. and I think it's a very effective way because, you know, sometimes you can do these things without touching any of the existing systems. And that means that you're not um, worrying in the first instance about the, any exposure to do with patient data. Um, and so you can, st- you can maybe get far enough along the way to, to show conceptually what is possible. And then we are working with a number of clients at the moment. I'm thinking of one in particular where that was successful to the point where they've said, okay, let's uh, let's make a small investment. Let's get it into the hospital environment uh, as a pilot. And as that gains momentum and success, we will then look to take it further, whether that's more capability that they're looking to do or into more hospitals. Uh, there's, there's lots of ways in which they can use that as the foundation for the 
business case to do the next thing. So in one way, you're saying it doesn't matter how much money you've got or where you are in your finance cycle, this is accessible because you can do it at a small scale and you probably should be thinking about it anyway. Yeah, there's certainly, I would encourage people who are maybe feeling a bit stuck to reach out and, and, and have a conversation with Intersystems because there are ways in which you can get moving. Um, it's not always the fact that doing some kind of technology proof of concept is appropriate, um, but certainly, you know, we, we've worked with clients on getting them connected with the people who can do a, a, a full business benefits realisation or anticipated business benefits case in advance of a program. And I would reiterate, you know, it doesn't always cost a mountain of money to do these things. And, you know, we like to innovate and work in partnership with our clients. So definitely um, reach out and let's start talking about it. Well, I guess even if you do have a mountain of money and you're motivated and you think you've got all the right people, going back to what Graham has said, the human side of this change is enormous. What do you think the, the sort of key skills sets an organisation must look to adopt in their, their workforce to contemplate this journey. I, I mean, having said, you've said some really interesting thing here that you can start small and maybe that's a way in and you only need a small group of people to do it. But it's interesting that for me that it feels like it's a mindset thing and it's a cultural thing that you have to grow within an organisation. Are you able to comment on yeah, that? From any I think experience? you're absolutely correct. I mean, I... I... When you think about skill sets, there are, depending on what we're talking about here, so interoperability, arguably some different skill sets and uh, that you might need compared to a data um, initiative. But I think what, you know, you, you touched on this, I think the what transcends both of those is more attitudes that you can then embed in your culture. And, and obviously, cultural attitudes and culture will be around a lot longer than a particular skill set and transcends the particular area where those skill sets might be applied as well. So I, yeah. I think there are some very important attitudes and skill sets. I'll talk about them as sort of the same thing. The one that you know I mentioned a little bit before, but the having having a strong leadership. Um, so as with the the Mercy Ascot uh, initiative, being able to have leaders who had this kind of growth mindset and say we're not going to put down the tools and wait. Uh, we're going to figure out how to do this. Um, and arguably, you know, it's a servant leadership style in that typically these leaders are working with very clever and experienced um, domain experts, you know, doctors, clinicians, specialists, and technology integration specialists, data scientists. And so the way to drive progress is far less about saying this is the way we're going to go and figuring out how to collaborate and create that environment together. So I think that you know, growth mindset, servant leadership is a really important um, element there. I, I'd also say nowadays, and maybe it always has been, but I feel more often these days um, having a real capability in your organisation to work with your vendors and work with your partners is becoming more and more important. So, you know, definitely understanding how you can build a mutually beneficial partnership with all of your vendors or as many of them as you possibly can. Uh, I think has a really big upside for, for both parties. But yeah, if you want to, uh, some specific skill sets that I'm seeing Intersystems clients investing in most recently, um, you know, particularly around data and uh, integration, you know, data analysts, data engineers, 
we've got a few that are doing some investment and in working around with data scientists and some that are exploring um, some technology and skill sets around auto machine learning. Obviously, clinical informatics continues to be a big area and you can't be successful in these sorts of endeavors without good people who understand the skill sets of change management and project management. So we, we, we see that um, perpetually as well. You are giving me a good segue, but you're giving a segue to something that is really amazing and big, which is the potential of AI. Mm. Um, and the, it's a potential that can't be released unless you start making interoperability work and work on a pretty networked basis across a lot of your healthcare system. That's a comment from me, yeah, I guess. Right. I saw a really interesting... Um, a really interesting uh, uh, presentation from Mayo Clinic from John Halamka, who's who runs AI out of there, and and essentially what he said was most of it's hot air at the moment because people are trying to spruik at the front end and they're trying to you know get a lot of investment, but the potential is is extraordinary, and he he mapped out the potential with big data sets being able to be interrogated by an algorithm in another country, and and you're not having to share IP to enable that algorithm to be able to be applicable for a diagnostic in another country. And he said these networks are starting. I'm pretty sure InterSystems is involved in this in a, in a fairly significant way. Could you just outline for the audience the sort, the sort of necessity of, of that interoperability for, for this data to be able to be, you know, because you're not, a, a lot of people aren't sharing data they they are prepared for that data to be used but it's their ip so they don't want to they don't want to actually share it but you have to be able to seamlessly talk between systems to be able to to do this stuff and optimize these algorithms yeah and start developing i mean literally they were developing diagnostics in the mayo clinic which have a, a far greater impact and rating than say a, a pap smear um, which is just AI based on data that they're that they're producing from particular areas, but now they're saying, "Well, this is an area in the United States. We're not sure if it applies in Australia." So, long long question. Apologies, That's Andrew. All right. I... Just take us through a little bit of that potential and and where you're seeing because I know that there is some pretty important and good organisations in Australia moving this way now. Yeah, indeed. I mean, and you've touched on a lot of points there, Jeremy. I think. The Mayo Clinic um, is, is certainly out front and there's, there's a lot of organisations that are, are doing really very interesting things. And then, like you said, there's the Sprukers. And uh, I, again, the interoperability piece is, is key if you're going to be able to share data across entities, whether they're organisations, countries or whatever they happen to be. That um, there is an element of, of trust and whether or not we're willing to do that. And I think that's a, probably a bit of a separate issue. But let's say you're an LHT or a HHS, you know, in, you know or a group of um, not-for-profit hospitals. You've literally got a set of data that soon you should be able to dial up an algorithm out of, you know, being developed somewhere else. And if, and if they get their interoperability capability right, what I understand is they they'll be able to go. Oh, look, can we, can we take this off the shelf, apply it to our data, and see what it see what it means to our population of patients? Yeah, yeah. Look, in in high level concepts, um, absolutely, some of that is correct. So, InterSystems does provide a capability within our um, feature set that um, I referred to before as AutoML, 
And the idea here is that you have lots and lots of different algorithms competing with each other on a particular data set to figure out which one is the best for that particular use case. Now, um, I think we've got to go back a step because the part of the issue with, I think it's not just the spruikers, but it's, it's maybe a bit more about how we as individuals um, have been experiencing AI. I mean, it's all around us. Um, I'll bet that the technology we're using to talk today is optimizing for background noises using machine learning. Um, and, you know, we've all got our digital personal assistants who are becoming better and better at actually talking to us, not just responding. And then, you know, the obvious ones like Amazon and um, Netflix, where you can get a recommendation on a book or, or a movie or whatever it might be. And, and people, I think people start to think that AI um, can work in the same way as healthcare uh, as it does in, in those retail and other contexts. And, and when I think about that, I, I, I think about a library. So if you walk into a library and you say, I'm really interested in reading more about the geopolitical history between 1065 and 1067. Now, if um, doctors were librarians, you'd get three librarians coming over to you at least consulting you on, okay, tell me exactly um, you know, what is the geography you're interested in? Tell me exactly what's the political elements that you're interested in. And each of them would have, you know, deep, deep domain expertise on those particular things in that particular area. So I think when you take that back to how can AI help in healthcare, it's got a long, long way to go. Um, yeah. Very, very complex, lots of context. One, just because you like something, or you might have a similar disease and a similar background to someone else doesn't necessarily mean the elements are there for AI to be able to help. Now, with lots of promise and lots of capability, and you did touch on it before, there are great examples happening in Australia. So a couple that um, I was thinking about, one is uh, one of our long-term clients is Sonic Healthcare. Um, they have recently announced their partnership with Analyze.ai. And this is a really wonderful um, thing. They're going to be using... Um, uh, that technology to look at um, chest x-rays and to help radiologists um, look for findings in those in those images. Another one is 3M. So we have a global uh, partnership with 3M um, and obviously they do a ton of work in many areas, but one in particular is around clinical coding. Um, and I heard Brian Mitchell on a panel um, recently talking about you know, they're heavily invested in natural language processing and recognition. And as you would appreciate, um, Jeremy, there's a lot of written language um, and a need for being able to recognize and pull apart um, text and language in, in the healthcare space. So, look, I think there's a lot of potential and the benefits that we can get, even just from those couple of examples, you know, reducing clinician burnout in the case of the radiologists and bringing down the cost of healthcare in the case of 3M uh, and all of the flow on effects is, is there. Um, so you also said, you know, what about these kind of healthcare networks that exist uh, wherever they are around the country? What is the opportunity? We are working with the Southwest Alliance uh, of Rural Health. Uh, we call them SWA out of Victoria. There's I think 14 or 15 hospitals there. And they're using our interoperability um, technology and they're looking at AI as to how they can optimize the use of the whole regional hospital network. Now, probably not a lot more detail I can go into about that um, until we're ready to announce it. 
but I think the, uh, the the key thing is that when we start to work with organisations that are at that end of the journey, it's exactly as you've you've said. Okay, so let's get let's make sure we understand the data. Let's make sure that we have um, some interoperability uh, around that data. Let's make sure that we have the organisation uh, capability. And then, as I was saying before, one one approach that we like to take is to try and find a um, something small, something deliverable that we can work on together, get a proof point, and then use that as the foundation to continue to build organizational muscle and get investment and uh, and to continue to grow from there. So long answer, but this is a big topic and uh, obviously very, very interesting. Yeah, It's, a, it's another podcast, yeah. um, which we can come back to. I'm going to bring us a little bit back to interoperability, practic- practical earth. Um, although I, I, I'm, I'm surprised at looking at a looking at a division in Victoria of hospitals that are that are looking that far advanced, I wonder how you know how big or small an organisation can call you, and in in what shape can they be when they call you? Can they be literally? I'm a little I'm um, I'm a small hospital that isn't very digitised at this point of time. Um, yeah, yeah. I might have electronic records, or I might not even. Um, and I'm looking for guidance. Absolutely. No, I think it doesn't, and it doesn't have to be a hospital. I mean, we work with, uh, as I said, health tech companies before that are building products for healthcare providers. We work with the labs. Uh, we work with um, small um, boutique uh, consultants who are doing healthcare analytics. Um, yeah. we, you know, it's really this, the spectrum. Uh, we've worked with very small hospitals and very big ones. You know, in some of our other businesses outside of healthcare, we've got companies that we work with that have got one or two people and, and they're building great products and trying to grow their business um, uh, through doing that. So I think there's, yeah, it really doesn't matter. And even if everything you do today is on paper and we may not have the solution to get you from paper to digital, we can help connect you with those people who do that, who will no doubt be in our network uh, and obviously be there when you're ready and, and have other things that we can work on to digitize your operations and improve your business. Um, so what I sort of get out of that is it's far more accessible than I thought it might be. Um, mm. If you're if you're a little bit lonely out there and confused, um, Andrew, we're out of time, uh, and I'd like to thank you a lot for tackling a topic which is, I think, for many people, um, very complicated, and it's very it's very difficult to to find an entry spot for some people. Um, depending where you are on the spectrum of a of a of a large healthcare organisation, you know, from a big public hospital right down to a small private hospital. So, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Let's talk again. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to the Wild Health Podcast. I'm Jeremy Nibbs. If you like what you've heard, head on over to Spotify, iTunes, or where you normally find podcasts to listen to our other episodes and subscribe. Leave us a review while you're there if you like. And if you want to get a lateral look at all things e-health each week, subscribe to our e-newsletter at wildhealth.net.au. Thanks for tuning in.